and you didn't find an audience for it and now you're like okay let me try something new you're not having to pay seven dollars for the second application as well <laughs> like you could pay the one price and keep the old project it can be somewhat off-putting that like i'm gonna have to spend fifty dollars just to maintain all of these sites that really aren't gonna make any money it often takes years to navigate the corresponding idea maze from the outside it looks like an overnight success because the long previous journey is quickly forgotten but it's precisely all these less successful attempts that came before the big hit that got them where they are now and this is why in this show my goal is to understand the lessons from all projects, not just the biggest hits. I'm Jacob Friedfeld, welcome to the Product Explorer podcast. There really is no better person to start this podcast with than Uber Scheichwell. He launched more than 90 products in the last few years, so he really deserves the title the King of Side Projects. And in this episode we talk about an approach that allows him to launch new products rapidly and his process for coming up with new ideas. We also discussed the story behind his most interesting projects and his experiences in collaborating with some of the biggest names in the maker scene. So let me know on Twitter at Jacob Greenfeld what you think of this episode. But now let's get into it. Let's hear it from Mops. I started making things on the side when it really wasn't cool and it wasn't hip and stuff. I started doing this stuff like back in 2001. And so that was when I did my first kind of side project. <laughs> But seriously and actively, I guess, probably since about 2015 was really when I really started to do a lot of, I just put a lot of effort into making side projects and, and working uh, on, on things like that. So it's been a good five years or so. <laughs> what I'm curious about is that you've built so many products over the years. It's like above 90 now. And, but it's not, your, it's not your main job. It's not what you're doing for a living. You still have a regular job at the moment. At least. Yeah, so over the last 20 years, I've worked at various startups. And more recently, I was working at just like an agency kind of work where we do, where we used to make a lot of websites and things like that. And just recently, I actually, I've left that as well. And uh, working full-time now on Founder Path with Nathan hacker as well so that's my full-time thing and then all these other things are just things i like to do on the side <laughs> yeah i saw that there were area 17 was the name right? yes and yes that's that, the is that a joke for uh, on area 51 because 51 no. divided by 3 is 17 i don't know <laughs> i don't think so uh, no it's actually so area 17 is so area 17 is the area of the brain that processes like visual images and it helps people understand what those images actually mean and area 17 was just a term that or was a name that the founders of the agency set up that just because they want to focus on the websites and visuals and helping people understand what they were seeing and, and things like that so that's where the sort of name that's where the name area 17 came from yeah, that makes a lot more sense than my interpretation. <laughs> well, it's good to know. Maybe that's why some people stayed away from it. They're like, we, we don't have alien stuff to work on here. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely want to talk about your collaboration with Nathan Latka in a few minutes or a bit later. Sure. Obviously, we can talk about it a little bit. But yeah, it was a side project. And then after a while, we just kind of decided that we were going we to work on it full time instead. So that's another interesting thing that side projects turn into your main thing as well <laughs> yeah that's the goal awesome and but the first thing i really want to dive um, in a little bit is like product development because i think this is maybe your biggest strength because uh, as you mentioned you have so much experience and you are really able to build a site like hot hunt i don't know in a weekend if you want or so where a, someone like me like beginner would need a month or but the cool thing is, of course, that you wrote this long series about making a side project and there 
really almost all my questions were answered. So <laughs> um, I, I don't think we need to repeat that. And anyone who is interested in can just read your um, article. But just one thing I really liked about it is that when you start learning about these kind of things and you read lots of stuff about test-driven development, wireframing, mm -hmm. writing user stories, and you get so confused and you really think, oh shit, I still have to learn all these kind of things. But in your theory, it's really clear that this is not necessary. You're not doing it, at least for your side project. Obviously, if you come with that kind of experience and that kind of history in terms of how you built things in the past, if you have the skills to do all of that kind of stuff, it's fantastic. Leverage that as much as you can. But when you're just getting started and, and you just want to build something quick for yourself or whatever it is, or even if you want to build a business that you want to launch and have other people pay you for, the quicker you can get to market, the quicker uh, you can see if the thing works and people actually want the thing that you built. And I tend to focus on, yeah, it'd be nice to do test-driven development, but at that early stage, you're just trying so many different things. You're seeing if, if this works or if this is the way to handle a problem, that doing something like test-driven development really just slows you down because not only do you have to write the software and change what you're doing with the software, you now have to go update all the tests and make sure all the tests pass and do all that kind of stuff as well. And, and, and like I said, in some cases, that's fine because if you've got lots of experience with working that way, then absolutely, you should stick with it. Like when we do work, when you know, I was at my agency and doing my agency work and, and even other places that I worked at, we did a lot of test-driven development. So I've got lots of experience with that. And I know that it makes me take twice as long to do anything <laughs> because I have to write the code and I have to write the tests as well. And then every time I change something, I got to fix the code and then I got to go fix the test as well. So I know that there's a good reason for it, but I also know that there's a good reason not to do it as well. With a lot of these things, it's nice to have. And if you've got a big company that's servicing lots of users, and if you want to do test-driven development, it makes a lot of sense because you'll be very confident that when you push out your new version or your fix or whatever, that it's actually not going to make things worse. But also, if you're just launching something and you have a handful of people coming to your website, if there's a bug or two, I think people almost expect you to have a bug or two when you're kind of starting out as well. Like, I'm still doing the testing. I'm just doing it as I make the fix. I code to the website. I try and do the thing that I'm trying to do. So I'm doing testing. I'm just not doing automated testing. I'm not doing something that's easily reproducible, but I know my software works. And even if you're doing test-driven development, you're still going to do that as well. You're going to do the, you're going to write the test to make sure things work. But ultimately that's just the software telling you that what it did worked. You still have to go to the website and make sure that the thing actually looks and functions the way that you were expecting as well. So you're still having to do that anyway. You just have a little bit more confidence that everything under the hood is working the way that it's supposed to as well. But for me and, and for lots of other people too, test-driven development in the circumstances when you have the time, when you have the specifications as well, is really helpful. But for people like us who like to move really fast and try lots of different things and build lots of different things, it's not so helpful. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. But it's just, as a beginner, you, you just don't know that you are allowed to do stuff like that. <laughs> it's, it's really like that. It's, it's the tiny things that I'm pretty sure once you have lots of experience, you just forget. It's the curse of knowledge. So you just yep. forget that people have this kind of problem. But at least for me, it's true. You have the picture that you really have to plan the program that you want to develop in advance. What I at least noticed for my first little project is I can just do the stuff. I can just um, yeah. build it as I go along and 
it, it turns out okay. I always find that most people doing side projects and stuff are doing it on their own. Like it's just you in front of your laptop or in front of your computer just working. Where, where a lot of those things come in really helpful, like test-driven development and having user stories and wireframes and stuff, is when you want to share that information and talk about that with other people so that everybody gets on the same page and everybody understands how things work and how things are supposed to look and stuff. But when it's just, why are you going to create this document when you've got all that information in your head? All you're doing is taking the information from your head, putting it into a document so you can share it with other people to make sure that they have the same information in their head as well. But it's just you. You can skip all of that stuff because you already have the information. You don't need to transfer it from your head to a paper to get it back into your head again. <laughs> yeah, makes perfect sense. And just a last question, because really everything else is answered in your article series, but has anything changed? Because the series is three years old and... For example, you're still using Laravel primarily. Yes, uh, I'm still using Laravel and that comes out with new versions and stuff fairly regularly. So I mean, obviously some of the specifics have changed in terms of how to build things. But I still use Laravel PHP to do almost all of my side projects. The front end stuff's changed a little bit. So recently, uh, so I was using Vue and sometimes even just vanilla JavaScript just to do some interactions and stuff on the front end stuff. I'm a big fan of the new tall stack, which is Tailwind, Alpine, Laravel, Livewire, and Laravel. Uh, there's, a, there's a website called tallstack.dev that, that kind of talks about that stack a little bit. So, yeah, I've been using that a little bit more just as a complete way of, of kind of building more kind of interactive applications. Yeah, I've never heard of it, to be honest. So I never heard of the tall stack, but it sounds cool because I, I love Tailwind. It's amazing. I played around with Jazz, and also Laravel is somewhat similar to Rails. Yeah, I will have to check it out. Sounds pretty That's cool. the other thing I tell people as well. Like, If you're doing a side project, there's no reason to learn anything new unless you don't know how to write code or if you never built kind of web applications in the past. But if you're used to using JavaScript, if you're used to using ASP, if you're used to using Python, if you're used to using Rails, just use it. When you're building your MVP, your first version, there's very little reason. Obviously, if you're doing something very specific, like mathematical formula stuff for this financial analysis or machine learning stuff, okay, maybe you want to use Python for a lot of that stuff. But generally speaking, if you're building a web, if you're building a SaaS app, and it's just with some forms where you're collecting information and you're turning around and you're saving that somewhere and then you're showing the Nobody cares if you're using PHP or Rails or Python or whatever. Nobody cares. Um, so if you have the experience with a specific stack and, and you're comfortable using that stack, just stick with it. You don't have to learn something new just to build a normal SaaS application. <laughs> Absolutely. But just for me, because I started learning, so you have to make a choice. And this can yes. <laughs> there isn't a perfect answer. So it's really a matter of taste. And then it's, it's not clear, for example, between Laravel and Rails. And that really is, you just have to try. I've used Rails, I've used Node.js, I've used Python, I've used ASP in the past as well. And it, it is, it's just a personal feeling in terms of the way that Rails works is the way that I like to write code. So I stick with it. I've used Rails in the past and it's, it's fantastic as well. The sort of problems I ran into with, with, with Rails wasn't so much that how, how do you build the application in the first place, but how do you do you deploy the application? Where do you deploy the application? And back then, at least, the, so your so options for that were much more 
uh, limited versus with a PHP application, there's, you know, a million and one places that you can host guess, a lot of applications with as well. So that's the other consideration to have in mind is it's nice to have the sort of latest shiny thing in terms of frameworks and things to kind of build with. But you also have to think about, okay, but once I take it off my local machine, I want to put it up on the server somewhere, has that kind of work as well? And like I said, with PHP and Laravel, you just had lots of options on that end of things as well. Yeah, this is something I just learned, to be honest, because I started using Rails and everyone is just using Heroku. It's super expensive. Right? <laughs> what, and what is that so many projects are built with Heroku and Rails, but they are all that, all that after yes. half a year or so, because you have to pay $7 a month at least as a minimum to, to just keep things running. And for many projects, that's not viable because it's just a fun little thing. And this is why so many projects are dead. You have to pay something to, to maintain servers, but I can on a $5 dropler on DigitalOcean run five or 10 different projects for that one price, because especially if there's no traffic, if there's no significant traffic coming in, because it was an experiment that you tried and you didn't find an audience for it. And now you're like, okay, let me try something new. You're not having to pay $7 for the second application as well. <laughs> like you could pay the one price and keep the old project live as well and try something new kind of at the same time. So in terms of scaling, in terms of costs, longer term, if you build something, it becomes popular. Paying $7 on a Roku probably doesn't have that kind of effect on you. But if you're still like that learning phase, trying to experiment, trying to make lots of things just so you can see how things work and how things operate, it can be somewhat off-putting that I'm going to have to spend $50 just to maintain all of these sites that really aren't going to make any money longer term. <laughs> this is really what I learned. And if I would start again, I would probably pick Laravel just exactly for this reason, because I wasn't aware of that. And I think there are options like Heroku that you can host yourself, but I haven't really looked into it. <laughs> and that's just something else that you have to learn as well. Like in terms of how do I, now I've got to go set up this whole like de deployment thing and kind of figure out how all of that stuff works. And again, it, it comes back to try and do as little as you can so that you can launch and run and get projects out there as fast as you can without having to learn new things and specialized software like that. It's one thing to learn how to write code because it's something that you can apply across the board and stuff. But in a lot of those cases, you're having to learn very specific DevOps kind of software that's very specific to what you're doing that isn't really going to apply to anything else as well. So it's sometimes it's a good skill to learn so that you have it for the future as well. But you also have to think about, am I using my time wisely? Because if it's a side project, especially I don't have a lot of time, I'd rather be working on my application than trying to figure out how to deploy and scale my application instead. <laughs> Yeah, what I've discovered for myself is um, just using static sites for as much as mm. I can and deploying them to Netlify or Wordful. Yeah. And because it's super stable, super secure, costs nothing, has all the security configuration, SSL certificate, and it's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and at least for my little project and also my next project, I will just stick to it. Now, obviously, it depends on what you're working on, if that works in terms of static sites and stuff. But if even if you're just like... I want to put up a landing page to see if people like this idea or not. Why use WordPress or something like that? We have to pay to host it and maintain it. If you can build a very simple static website and have that hosted for with, without having to pay anything for it, absolutely, yeah, you should absolutely run with that, especially if you're still working on it for the first six months or whatever while you're still working on the application, having something up so that people can sign up for a mailing list or whatever uh, kind of makes a lot of sense too because then once you're at the point where you actually want to launch you hopefully you have a mailing list you have some people who are very interested in the thing that you're working on as well yeah it's crazy that 
stuff like WordPress got so popular, at least in my opinion, because it's like a total overkill for 90% of all applications. Because just to host a blog, what I'm currently using is Jekyll, so mm -hmm. because it's also uh, Ruby. And it's also static, and you can host it for free on GitHub, and it's, yeah, it's, it can't be hacked. You, have, you don't have to worry about backups. Yes, it's, it's so simple, and it's, it's such a beautiful solution. <laughs> Great for us in terms of people who know how to code or want to learn how to code. The, the main reason that WordPress got really popular was that a lot of the hosts out there had just you had these one-click installs. You could just sign up for the hosting and say, I want to install WordPress, and then you just go find a theme, and you install the theme, and now you can just, within WordPress, within the editor, you can change the colors, and you can add content and stuff like that. For people who couldn't write code or didn't want to learn to write code, something like WordPress just made that super easy. Like, you didn't have to have any technical skills whatsoever, and you could host, you could have a site up and running in a few minutes now. It was very insecure and couldn't scale, and you had to make sure that you upgraded WordPress frequently and all the plugins that you use frequently otherwise you were going to get hacked and stuff but also like i said it didn't require any technical skills and and for a lot of people that was the options that they had at the time yeah which is crazy because i think there are much simpler solutions even for these kind of requirements like you worked on Statamic. yes for, yes for it's also flat file that, that was actually one of the reasons that we built uh, that was why we built Statamic at the time was we were really tired because it wasn't just about installing wordpress but now you got to install plugins to do caching and stuff so that it could scale and things like that and then it was always like yeah but really all we're doing is building a simple site like why is it even needed why does it even need my sql like why do we even need that yep. and, and so that was one of the reasons that that, that we originally started as like an alternative CMS um, out there as well. And obviously the world's changed a lot over the last five or 10 years in terms of even things like Webflow and, and Squarespace. And so all these offerings that have popped up that allow people to do things without having to write any code as well. But again, part of the reason was that because WordPress got really popular, people saw that there was a need for something like this in terms of People want to be able to build things really quickly and easily and fast, but they don't have the sort of skills in terms of how to write HTML and, and that kind of stuff. And, and now that you can, now that people have, you know, people saw the need with WordPress and they're like, okay, there's, there's kind of alternative ways that we can make this really easy without having to worry about all the security and, and scaling issues as well. Yeah, and it's absolutely fantastic that this is happening, <laughs> to be honest, yeah. in particular since this new WordPress editor is Gutenberg. So yeah. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> yeah. Not a fan. Just one observation I had when I had a look at the, your projects and the different ideas you put out there in your articles here. If I had to describe your approach, I would say excitement driven. So you're not <laughs> the kind of guy who does like market research. So is that a fair yeah. description no. of your ideation process? Enthusiasm, maybe not excitement. My situation, like I said, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, is I've always had a full-time job. I've always been pretty happy doing what I am doing. So the reason that I'm building side projects isn't the same as some other people. So for some other people, it's I hate my job. I don't want to be doing this anymore. I want to build something on the side and then I want it to be my thing. And so I think if you're building, if you're building with that in mind, then yeah, understanding what the market is and doing market research and understanding if there is a user base who will pay you every month, enough people that will pay you a salary over the space of a year use your software it absolutely makes a lot of sense to be able to understand if if that market exists and if there's a need for the thing that you're trying to build now even in some cases i still think that's the wrong approach because just because there's a market there for it doesn't mean that you're the person to build that software just because there's a trend to build websites for 
dentists or to build websites for lawyers or websites for accountants. There's plenty of accountants paying people thousands of dollars to build their website for them. Doesn't mean I'm the person to go build a website for a lawyer or an accountant or uh, or whatever. So I think that's why I, I keep in mind what the excitement, what the enthusiasm about the idea is as well, because if you, especially if you're doing it on the side, especially if you're doing it on weekends and evenings, <clears throat> if you come home after having worked eight, 10 hours a day for your job, and then it's, oh, sh- now I got to do another two or three hours to build this thing. If it's something that you're not excited about, if it's something that you're not enthusiastic about, it's going to be really hard to like, to, to make you stand up off the couch where you're chilling out, relaxing, watching TV and to go work again. <laughs> if you're not excited, if you're not enthusiastic about the thing, about the idea that you have that, that, that you want to explore and, and see if you can build something for, it's really not going to happen. That to me has always been a really important factor in terms of which ideas. Yeah, I have lots of ideas and a lot of them I just leave. Just I just let them, I let them sit and I don't do anything with them because I'm like, it's a cool idea. I see people making lots of money with this thing. I could make my own little version of this, right? I could tweak it, but I'm like, I don't really want to do that. Even like now, for example, I see that there's lots of people making lots of money with scraping software. If you want to go scrape content from the web, there's like, I look on indie hackers and stuff and there's like a ton of projects out there that are making a lot of money doing that are doing web scraping. I'm like, that's the last thing I want to work on. I don't want to sit there writing software to go analyze HTML so I can extract little bits of information out of a page. I'm like, I can do it. I've had to do that stuff in the past. And I know it's not exciting for me. It's not exciting for other people. It might be very exciting. And I'm like, I could build a scraping software. It's not really rocket science or anything like that, but I'm just not excited about it. I think there's this idea about um, product market fit in terms of is the product and the market, is there a market for the product and kind of what's the fit like and stuff like that. I think there's the sort of other part of that is the product fit as well, just because there is an opportunity to build uh, a piece of software, but who's the maker to kind of make that, not just from an excitement standpoint from the product standpoint as well but also do you have access to the people who will use that as well i could build software for real estate agents and things like that but do i want to go talk to to real estate agents every day no i don't want to do that i'm sure they're very nice people and i I bought a house in the past and i I don't think i want to speak to real estate agents every day obviously i know where they hang out there's kind of agencies and there's kind of associations and things that you can reach out to find that yeah to share more information and stuff but it's just not something I want to do. I don't want to talk to real estate agents every day as well. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, yeah. And you mentioned that there is a difference between like most of your projects, which were just built for fun. So they were on most of your project, there's no monetization at all, not even ads, yep. between just for fun projects and projects which have some monetization aspects. So I'm curious how you would go about it. Because I understand, of course, I'm just being enthusiastic. And having a cool idea and building it over a weekend is, of course, a <laughs> valid approach. I've just done it myself. But I'm curious how you would go about um, building a side project that earns some money. So not yeah. millions, but just some money. It's actually something I'm trying to do now. With the one-hour one SaaS thing that I'm doing, the whole idea with that was to build a SaaS application. But not just build a SaaS application, but actually build a SaaS <laughs> business instead and so i I think with with that you have to start premise that what i'm building it has to be worthy of somebody willing to pay money for it and so you really have to like reframe your approach i still you i still think you have to be 
thinking about, is this something I want to build? Is this something I'm excited about? Is this something I know how to reach the people who might want to actually use this stuff? So I think all of that stuff that we just talked about still applies it, 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 in, in some ways is even more important. If I'm just building something for fun, then I don't really care if there's a market for it. I don't really care if there's an audience for it and, and I can reach that audience as well. With something that you're trying to do more seriously and, and more long-term as well, I think you definitely have to pay attention to all of that kind of stuff as well. And I think for me, the easy way has always been, I've been a big fan of building in the public, building in the open as well. I think that to me has always been a really good way to try and attract the users that I want while I'm still working on stuff as well. With this whole one, one hour SaaS thing, being able to talk about what I'm building as I'm trying to work on it, I think naturally just gets people interested and people excited, hopefully, about what you're working on. So building in the open has been something that, that's worked really well. Uh, one, it just helps you make sure that you're building the thing, but then also just helps you with the market. Because I think as developers, we, we like to make things, but we're not very good at the sales and the marketing side of things as well. And so if you wait till you finished your product and then start marketing, you know, one, it just takes really a long time. You spend you know, a few weeks, months, whatever, making something. And now you got to spend a few weeks, months actually doing the marketing and sales and stuff like that. But if you're building in public, then you're doing everything at the same time. The sort of time to market becomes maybe a little bit longer doing more than one thing at a time. You're also doing a lot more in terms of ad advancing the business aspect of, of what you're working on as well. Yeah, building in public, I think, is an awesome strategy for indie makers. It's great to see that uh, lots of people are doing it and it's working and it's super helpful for people like me. I'm learning so much by watching people. And I think it's also helpful to just to see that it's not like a straight line. I, like, I don't sit down and think about what I'm going to write and just straight line to the out end of it. It's a winding road where it's, I tried this didn't work. Now I got to go search on Google to see why this isn't working. And, and, and I think people expect that even with people like myself, who have been doing this for the last 20 years. We're still learning things. We're still figuring this stuff out. And it, you know, a lot of the times you're building something new that you haven't worked on in the past. The best skill that you can have is not, not 20 years worth of history of experience in terms of all the code that you've written, but it's like, I've hit a bug. Now, what's the way to solve that bug? What's the things to search for? What's the things to look at? And where's, where do I look at in the log files to find why there's an error here? Just understanding the process people have for figuring out what's working and what isn't working is way more helpful, I think, than, than here's a specific solution to a specific issue that you're having. <laughs> yeah, this, I think the term is implicit knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge you re can't really teach. Yeah. You can only learn it by observing and spending time with people who are able to do it. And yeah. I think live streams are yeah, exactly where you can grasp these kinds of finer issues. I noticed that lots of your projects are very focused on trends because just a few examples here. Podcasting, of course, is a huge trend, but also your will my job give me COVID? <laughs> will robots yeah. take my job? Zoom backgrounds, how I spend my stimulus, medium top authors, back when medium was a big thing. And also a lot of crypto stuff and chatbots when they were a big thing. <laughs> and so is this something you do consciously or is it just a byproduct of your enthusiasm? Driven? I think it's the enthusiasm thing more than anything else. It just happened to me when the crypto, I was very excited about learning more about Bitcoin, Ethereum and stuff like that. You build things in that space so that you can, so that you can learn more about that space. But for me, the best way to learn it is to make something. <laughs> and that's usually where it, where it comes out. And I did the same thing with 
chatbots. They first came out. I spent a lot of time building chatbots and and we ended up building Botlist as well. And then with podcasting, like I said, I'm excited to be on podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. So it just kind of made sense to build the kind of tool that I was looking for that that kind of wasn't out there as well. So I was very excited and very enthusiastic about that, about the podcasting industry as a whole. So to be able to be involved in it and to build in it. So I'm not looking for trends that I'm not excited about. Like, like I'm not going to go uh, build a website about taxation because there's a big tax bill coming out. I'm not doing stuff that I'm not excited about, but it's stuff that I want to learn about and stuff that, I'm, that, I, that I think might be exciting to, to look at and, and get under the hood about as well. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So, of course, there are lots of people who are doing this kind of strategy on purpose. They subscribe mm -hmm. to like the Trends newsletter from the Huzzle, which costs like 300 bucks a year super expensive just because they want to hop on the next hype train. And yep. of course, I think there's nothing wrong with this approach because no. everything is easier when you're riding away. I, I think it also depends on what you're trying to do. For the most part, at least, there's been stuff I do for my hobbies and, and stuff that I'm interested in. It's not something that I'm like, I've got to earn my next paycheck of this stuff. So if there's a trend that you can hop onto and you can ride the wave of that trend, yeah, it's absolutely much easier to just earn your next paycheck out of that. I was already earning my next paycheck, so I didn't have to worry about that. And so then I can stick to, okay, what's the thing that, you know, once I've worked for eight hours a day earning the paycheck, what's the thing that I want to do that's fun and exciting after that as well? And do you have some kind of prediction still about the next kind of trend you're seeing? So because, of course, in podcasting, but I've noticed that a lot of people have mentioned that the amount of time they spend listening to podcasts has, has declined. And of course, it has a lot to do with Corona with the COVID stuff because people yep. are not commuting any, anymore. Yeah all these kind of stuff. So it's, I still think longer term, there's still a trend. They're not necessarily podcasting specific. I think it's a very specific term, but just in terms of audio and people recording audio and listening to audio, I think is still in many ways still in its kind of infancy. I think it's really just a transition of radio and TV into kind of in de demand stuff rather than having to watch the news at a, you know, at six o'clock or having to watch it in front of a TV, just being able to like, just listen to, just listen to the news on your iPhone whenever you want to, I think is that kind of thing. So that, I think that trend will continue. And I think it's gonna, now that the sort of larger players are involved with that, I think it's gonna, obviously you're, you're over in Europe, but yeah, over here in the US, for example, like CNN and MSNBC, which are like, so the big news channels, all of the anchors now have podcasts where they put out episodes every day about whatever the sort of topic of the day is or the other thing that they want to talk about. And you can listen to that whenever you want to. You don't have to wait till six o'clock in the night just to watch that specific thing. It's very much becoming more mainstream. So I think, so I think that trend will continue. It's obviously we're not in the early phase anymore. It's becoming a lot more established and stuff. When coronavirus first hit, there was a, a decline in the amount of time that people were uh, spending listening to podcasts. I think part of that had to do with People weren't in the car or on the train or whatever to trying to get to their job, which is where they would normally listen to podcasts. And you have to make the conscious effort to actually, oh, there's a podcast I want to listen to. It wasn't just automatic that you just hopped in the car or you hopped on the train and you're like, okay, I'm going to turn the podcast player on now. But now I think people have come back to it a little bit now and they're like, okay, there was that podcast that I really enjoyed listening to. So I'm going to make some time to actually sit down and listen to it or listen to it while I'm cooking or cleaning instead so still doing that using that that time wisely where you now i was wasting time in the car now i've got to clean the house i might as well listen to a podcast while i do that so so i think that that's an interesting thing as well that people did it wasn't just the fact that it was easy and con convenient people found 
that they actually enjoyed it. And now they're trying to find the time to stick with that as well. So I think that's an interesting thing as well. I think in terms of trends, I think obviously coronavirus has accelerated a few trends. And I so, so I think it's very interesting to see just the whole remote collaboration space has existed for a really long time. People have been trying to do on trying to move meetings online and things like that. And people, I think there was a human resistance to that. There wasn't, there's not too many technical reasons why it wouldn't work, but there was this feeling that people wanted to be in the same room. They wanted to be able to see people that they were talking to. They wanted to be in the same physical space. And obviously with coronavirus, you can't enforce that anymore. People, people can't be in the same space. So I think even though, even though it's existed for a while as a kind of sub industry and things, I think the sort of acceleration now that you'll see in terms of online collaboration tools and a lot of the remote working tools, I think you're going to see a massive explosion in that over the next, it's basically already started since the coronavirus hit, but I think for the next few years, you'll continue to see that. I think that is probably the biggest trend that we'll see over the next few years at least. Yeah, it seems like a safe bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, there's not really anything new, like Web, WebRTC and, and those kind of tools have existed for a really long time. And I think the sort of reasons that it hasn't really caught on, there wasn't a technical reason that they hadn't really caught on. All of these things are possible and have been possible for a while, but the, but the, the human opposition to it has now been wiped away. So it's going to be interesting to, to see how people expand and explore that as well. Next, I want to talk a little bit about your project in more in more detail you created this huge list of all your projects it's available yes. on iworkedon.com i think everyone should have this kind of list because it's so useful and it's one of the big things that's missing for example by on product hunt that you can't see if a product is still live or what's the status so i really would love to go through <laughs> this and talk about every single one of them but there are just too many at least on your list. I, I don't know if you've seen this, but Pickford. Yes. Um, he has a super cool list also with all his projects. Yep. He has posted it as an Excel sheet. And it's, it's, it's just so helpful to see how many tries people have until they find <laughs> a winner. Right. And, and in contrast to what you were doing, he tried to earn money from the start. Yes. So he really started from the completely different opposite end because his first projects were I think no fun, just money. So it was these niche side affiliate kind of yep. stuff, which you really, it's, no one enjoys doing this. It's no. just, you just do it for the money. But now, of course, I think he has found a, a sweet spot for him. And you're really coming from the opposite end, from the just fun end, and now also moving a bit <laughs> towards the money. I think to some, and also just because I think to some degree, a lot of people who are following me, like, I try to do it for you because they want to build something real as well. So a lot of the things I've done in the past have been not just to build the thing, but also to share how I built the thing. And so a lot more people are interested in building things that have the monetization aspect on it as well. So the fact that I'm now building those things and sharing how I'm building those things, I think is helpful as well. Not to say that the sort of enthusiastic and the excitement for the idea, I think I still think that's, that's still super important as well. Uh, obviously, as I'm getting slightly older too, I'm trying to think about retirement and stuff. And I'm like, it'd be nice to have something that was making a bit of money too. It would be, nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah. <laughs> nothing wrong with that too. Um, just a quick little side story. So I'm not sure if compared our lists or not, but you'll see. Actually, I'm not even sure I put it on my list, but there was a project that I built with Josh. I'm trying to remember when that was. I think it was in like 2000, maybe 2001-ish. 
if you look at his, what's it called? Fugitive Toys list. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's on my list at all anymore, but yeah, so I built the first version of Fugitive Toys with Josh, I, I think it was back in like 1999, I think. So we've worked on stuff in the, it's a small world. <laughs> That's really cool. I, I wasn't aware and really back in the days. Yeah, <laughs> really long time ago. Super cool. And this is also something I noticed and wanted to ask you about is because um, you've worked with a lot of different makers over the years in terms of yes. collaboration, for example, with Ben Fossil, Des Louis, <laughs> Isenshaw, now Nathan Lesker, of course. And I'm curious, though, what kind of agreements or how this worked? Because, um, of course, I also was thinking about this kind of thing, but then I was puzzled, okay, how actually do you pull it off? Because it makes everything so much more complicated. Because, of course, if then something takes off and becomes super popular, then what about the legal stuff? And I don't know, how do you really structure it? And I, I at least imagine that it's super complicated. And I'm really curious how you handle these kind of issues in the past. Yeah, yeah. Again, it goes back to I'm not really building something that needs to make money that I need to earn money from. My approach to this has been very relaxed and very chill. And with, with a few of those things too, the sort of reason was completely separate anyway. I've tended to be like, this is just a cool thing that I want to build. And if it turns into something, we'll figure that out afterwards. For example, when I worked with Ben on a few projects as well, with him, he was working full time on those. Like even if we started to make money on those, I was like, well, I've got a paycheck. So you know, let's just take the money the project is making. Let's use that to pay your salary so that you can carry on working on it full time and kind of things like that so that we can continue to grow in and advance what we were working on. Just with the understanding that that's just the way that it is. And if it ends up being something really massive at some point, we can figure that out at some point. It's not really a big deal. The thing with Hitton Shah, <laughs> for example, that one was a weird one where it was like, I think it was... January one year, it was really cold. It was snowing outside. There was like, you know, lots of snow outside already, lots of ice on the ground and everything like that. And I sent out a random tweet. I was like, who wants to pay to fly me out to California where it's nice and warm so I don't have to be cold and stuck in the house in Eastern on the East Coast of New York? And him just reached out and he was like, I've got this thing that I'd love for you to build. When can we fly you out, basically? And I was like, I was only joking. <laughs> I wasn't being serious. My family would not like me just to leave them here for a few weeks while I work on stuff. But we just talked and I was just like, I'd love to build something with you because you're an awesome guy and I've been following you for a really long time. And so we just built something. It was just, again, it was just a fun thing. I, I, some things I build because I want to make money. Some things I build because I want to work with people. Some things I build just because I'm excited about the idea and I want to build it. And so, yeah, so that thing with Hinton Shah, yeah, I didn't get a flight out to California. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting any of you to be actually serious about it either. But yeah, but it ended up being something cool that I got to build and I got to put on the resume to say I built something with him as well. So it's, like I said, I've been less concerned about the whole legal stuff because it's, if it turns into something, it turns into something. And in some cases it has, like when we built Q with my friends, Dan and Matt, they're running Q now. They've been running it for a number of years. There's six or seven people that work at Q. It's making, it's making good money. It's paying salaries and stuff like that. I still own a percentage of Q as well. It's worked out. Uh, and it was just something that we didn't really have a formal agreement for. It was like, let's just try build this thing. And if it turns into something, we can figure out afterwards you know, based on who's working on it full time, who's not working on it full time, you know, who's taking salary, who's not taking a salary, sort of those kind of things that you just, as long as everybody's reasonable, 
and has a, a has a fair approach to in terms of you saying how much effort are you putting in how much do you expect to, to see at, at from the output as well yeah and that and part of that is just understanding who you're working with as well if, if you have a relationship with people that you're making stuff with starting small on a small project that you're not spending six months a year on if you're spending a few weeks on it instead even if things don't work out exactly how you hoped it's only a few weeks worth of work like it's not been your life's work to build this one thing and then then it doesn't work out it then it doesn't work out but if you spend a few weeks on it it's not a big deal if you spend months on it it becomes a big deal at that point yeah most people are nice and reasonable so yeah it's, it's really great to hear that it always worked out like this so it just started without any kind of formal agreement and just figured it out along the way and everyone so everyone was always happy so there were never any conflicts fights i don't know because i can imagine that this quickly happened <laughs> no i think like i said you just have to be honest and upfront with people like i was always honest with people i'm like i've got a job so i'm probably not going to come work at this thing because there's no way that this startup thing that we just started is going to pay me the kind of salary that i need to support my family and everything like that so i was always very open with people to say if this if this thing takes off i can carry on working on it part-time i can put a few hours in here or there uh, but if you need a full-time person working on this, it's not trying to be me. So I think as long as you're open with people and say, look, I, I know you can't afford to pay me my salary that I'm making now, and I can't afford to leave my salary now because I have to support my family. I think as long as you're open and honest with people with what you're expecting and what kind of everybody else is expecting as well, I think it works out fine. It's, it's always if you're like, I, I want to come, I want to be, I want to be a full co-founder of this thing, but I can't work on it, you know, full-time is if the other people are quitting their jobs and and are going to be spending all the time working on it, then you have to make some adjustments in terms of what your expectations are as well. So I think, yeah, as long as you're open and honest about what the amount of work is that you're going to do and what the amount of work is that they're going to put in and if people are going to put in cash or not cash, if people are going to put in time, it's understanding not everybody... It's nice to think about every just splitting things equally and stuff, but if you're not doing equal amounts of work, you shouldn't expect to get equal amounts of kind of ownership and, and, and kind of stuff like that either. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I also had, what's the story behind Q on my list? <laughs> I, I wonder, because it, it really stuck out because it was one of the things you were listed as a maker, as a maker, yeah. but then you left and it's still a company. So I was curious. Yeah. What's the yeah. Yeah. The very high level story there was just, you know, Dan Matt came to me with an idea. I thought it was a good idea. I didn't have the time to work on it at the time. And then I think it was like six months later. I basically I told Dan and Matt, I'd love to work on this. I don't have the time now. You should go try and find somebody else to, to, to work on it. And six months later, I had some, I just had some spare time. And so I said, so I, I love that idea. Have you found somebody to work on it? They're like, no, we haven't. So I spent basically, I spent basically like two weeks working on the first version of that. And they basically used that first version to get the first 5,000 people in, in the door to use the software. Uh, they went out and raised some, some seed capital to run the company. And then so I was involved with it for a while in terms of just, again, it was just like I've, I can put in a few hours a week kind of thing. I worked on that for a while with them until they got it to the point where they could just go and hire like a full-time developer as well based on the MRR that they had at the time and stuff like that and yeah they're, they're doing really well I think that's probably four years old now <laughs> Q I think is about four years old so it's, it's just been awesome to see how they've been able to scale that out 
yeah, really great to hear. And you still own a part of it, so you're still getting... Yes, <laughs> so hopefully at some point there'll be an exit. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's the dream, okay. Yeah, because I noticed that when, I think when we first launched, they got almost no attention, at least on Product Hunt, only 50 votes or so. And then the second version, or I don't know, uh, uh, different launches got then lots of attention. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think that's the natural way too. People don't know who you are, people don't know what your offering is. And so once people learn about you and, and become users and stuff, and that was, yeah. And also, I think we became more well known as well as we were working on it as well. So it helped just in terms of just having an audience as well, just to make sure that we ranked higher up on the homepage as well and stuff like that. It was all, it was a nice journey to see the sort of evolution of just having that spark of an idea. We didn't know if people were going to like the idea. I thought it was a really awesome idea. And so did Dan and obviously. And, and yeah, it's just been awesome to see that the market has proven that, that it's a good idea as well. Yeah, perfect success story. So at least yeah. <laughs> until, until now, really cool. Yeah. And another project that stuck out for me is Marketing Stack. Yeah. Um, because... <laughs> yeah. Totally crazy. So because there are, of course, all, always these kind of trends on product hunts yes. and during a short period of time, a specific type of product gets all the upvotes all the time. And that was, of course, what was it called? Startup Stash or so. Which Startup is Stash the, is the first one, yeah. The most upvoted product on product hunts, <laughs> which is completely crazy because it's so simple and yeah. it, 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 all, it was sold, I don't know, for, for quite some money. And I then also saw that your marketing marketing stack i think it's called yeah stack. marketing yeah, stack. Not, okay got like six thousand up upwards so completely crazy and it's really just a pretty fine excel file <laughs> no offense so because nope. no i read the story that um, you just collected <laughs> yeah. like 150 links in an excel file and then told you and asked you maybe let's make it pretty and this is what you did and completely crazy and you ended up selling it yeah and it's funny because the site's not up anymore. I, I think it's so, yeah. I, I, I never, I find that amazing that people spend money to buy stuff and then they just ignore it. It's just, if you get, if you, <laughs> I guess if you have the money, then that's fantastic for you. Do but, whatever you want. But yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it but, just seems but, a, a strange way to spend your money. <laughs> but at least you can read it, re redirect it to some other page in order right. to get the CO2. So, yeah. The CO2. So, yeah. It's, yeah, that was a fun, that was another one of those fun. I think that was one of those ones that, Ben was trying lots of different experiments to see what was what would work, what what is and he's more on the marketing side of things anyway. So it made sense for him to collect all those things. It was one of those things where I've got most of these things already because it's sites that I visit all the time and it's, it's things that I do all the time anyway. So just collecting them into a spreadsheet and then he sent me a spreadsheet. I just wrote a little script to import them all and organize them in different categories and things like that. And we just built a very simple page that just listed them all and, and allowed people to filter into the different categories and things like that. And it was, yeah, I think it, at launch we got 2000 upvotes and then it's just been on the site for a really long time, obviously. So it's continued to get upvotes ever since that as well. So uh, yeah, it was number one on the day, I think. And, and yeah, so all sorts of stuff like that. But that was like, I said, that's mostly just Ben doing the marketing side of thing, making sure that there was a lot of excitement about that. Cause obviously, like you said, it's a very simple site. <laughs> It's really crazy because there are lots of stories of people like spending six months building some super complicated tool and then, I don't know, crickets, nothing. Yeah. And you, you slash together a simple Excel sheet and it uh, gets all the attention and even sold and makes some profit, not just yeah. having some fun. Super awesome. Yeah. But it's, it's, yeah. I, I don't know what would you say 
is, was it just luck or was it really um, then pushing the marketing so hard? I, I think part of it is just understanding what, what people are looking for, right? Like it, it, I get the, oh, I, and also how many people are looking for it too. So you could build a very complicated, very specific thing. And if your audience is six people around the world, then you're going to get six upvotes. But if you're building something for the marketing industry, there's millions and millions of people who want to know marketing, want to do marketing, have to do marketing. And yeah, so there's just some tools I think that are just naturally going to do much better on sites like product hunt just because of what they are and the kind of audience that product hunt has and the kind of product that you have so uh that's why i love product hunt i've been on it for a really long time i've launched lots of things on it as well but i think you have to understand what you're building and is that the audience for it and you know don't put all of your hopes and dreams on i'm going to build something i'm going to launch on product hunt and it's going to do amazingly because if you're building something for rocket scientists i can pretty sure there's not too many rocket scientists hanging out on product hunt so maybe this is better for that one yeah so yeah just understand what you're building and who you're building it for and then understanding where they hang out is obviously really important as well that's why obviously startup stash did really well on product hunt because it's people building startups that's the whole point of product on <laughs> product hunt so if startup strategy didn't do well on product hunt it wouldn't have done well anywhere <laughs> so so i think you have to kind of understand that as well yeah it's also something of course i observed and this is why at least for my first free projects i want to focus on this niche because it maybe it's not the smartest strategy in terms if you would look at the whole picture but at least it's so easy to reach these kind of people because they hang out on product hunt they are willing to try new stuff and you get right. feedback you can connect with people so just building stuff for the maker community like you did is, I think, yeah. a great strategy. But you need to understand that if you want to build, I don't know, something for <laughs> doctors, I don't know, then yeah, yeah, and like, I mean, I, I, yeah, and, and like I said, there, there's lots of places that you can launch. Yeah, other things as well. Don't. Yes, it's important to have a launch strategy and about where you're going to launch things and how you're going to launch things and stuff. But just because everybody else is launching on product hunt doesn't mean that you have to as well. <laughs> and, yeah, Ben also is, was like the perfect person to work with because he has the perfect insider knowledge because he worked yes. at Product Hunt. He, <laughs> he was responsible for the, for, the page, for the front page. And also you did another project with him, which is Newco. Yes. Yes. And this morphed into his now, into what now. makeup pad. Yes. And this is also like an incredible success. <laughs> so yeah. At least from what He's, I gather. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's doing amazingly well. It's doing amazingly well. So yeah, Nuco was this, well, it was just an extension of kind of what he was doing. After he left Product Hunt, he was just trying to help people make stuff. Like, you know, people who couldn't, couldn't code all the time, didn't know how code. And obviously the market's changed a little bit underneath us in terms of the, the whole no code market really exploded as well but so he was just trying to help people like they've got an idea they want to be able to launch it so the whole idea was nuco was like how do we get people from i don't know how to code i don't have any experience i don't necessarily want even want to learn how to code but i want to build a marketing page or landing page or something like that or i want to build something um, that doesn't necessarily require any code can you show me with the different tools that are out there with the web flows of the world with the bubble of of those kind of things can we build can we build can we start building things without necessarily having to know how to code he started doing that on his own just i think it was just like a few private pages somewhere and he would just it was like a, a ocean site i think with with some links on it to some videos that he'd recorded and and and, and kind of things like that 
And so he, he reached out to me and was like, hey, I'd like to scale this out a little bit more. Can we build something that, that has a full kind of CMS attached to it so that we can manage this stuff and we can control who has access to all the different things and kind of stuff like that. So we, yeah, we spent probably about six months or so building that and trying to figure out how we scale that out. And then in the end, what we found was like, really it was like, just as we were building that was when the code movement really started to explode. And so we were like, Ben really you know, sat down for a while and we talked about it and he was like, it makes sense to do this thing as a completely no code <laughs> kind of thing. Just because the sort of tools that come out had actually allowed him to do a lot of the things that he wanted to be able to do as well now without having to write something custom and stuff. And so we, and I was cool with it. I was like, let's take what we did at Nuco and as much as you can, let's see if you can launch it on Makerpad, but do it without any code whatsoever. And we'll see what the market says in terms of are they interested in this stuff. Because like part of the problem that we ran into was that just to, to write all of the tutorials and documentation and stuff was really time consuming. And it was something that we couldn't quite figure out how to scale uh, easily just because it required more people to write the tutorials and we obviously needed to pay them and so all sorts of stuff like that. And then when we when Ben switched to Makerpad, it kind of just so happened that a lot of the no-code no uh, players were out there. They were busy working on the actual tool itself and they were looking for people to help with the marketing of it. So in many cases, they came to us and said, or they came to pen rather and said we'll pay you to write the tutorial if you post it on your site and you share it <laughs> and so we kind of solved that problem because it was now we have a way to monetize it without having to go and find people to pay for this stuff as well and yes so the early part of that was trying to figure out how to scale the two sides of things it just became a lot easier and then ben like i said he just focused on doing it all without any code and stuff like that and i think it's worked out really well for him so that's really awesome yeah, it's another great example where um, riding a wave, just the perfect strategy because he was he positioned himself, then the big wave came, and now every, everyone is coming. So this I think the sort of important thing there is that he didn't just wait for the wave either. Though. I think that's the thing. Right? I think a lot of people like they want to wait for the wave, or they want to see the wave, and then they want to hop on at the time and stuff. I think what Ben had done had he established himself in the space already. And then the wave just came and lifted him along. Like, so it wasn't like he just jumped in at the last minute and like rode the wave up to, to the top. He was sitting there in that space waiting for the wave. So I think that's the thing I think people forget is that you can't expect to see the wave and then hop on it at the same time. You have to, you kind of have to put your stake in the ground and say like, this is where I think the wave is going to come. And when it comes, you have to be there and you have to be ready for it as well. I think that's, I think that's, that's what Ben had done in that he really established himself as an expert in the code space and in that particular movement and when that movement really exploded it did carry him along but if he hadn't already been an established player in that space it wouldn't it would have carried somebody else instead so he did a lot of the work to establish himself in that space way before it was cool and and hip and trendy and stuff and yeah so i think that's the other thing that i think that people forget is that yes it's luck that you know you happen to be riding a wave but it's also hard work in terms of doing a lot of things that aren't uh, that you're not seeing that immediate return for with the expectation that hopefully at some point you will see that return, but it's not always luck. It's some people do put in a lot of hard work and put in a lot of effort to make sure that what, what, what looks like it's. Yeah. You have to be prepared. Of course, I think yeah. luck always plays a role. You can't yeah. deny that. 
yeah, he made the he made the educated choice about I think this is a movement that will happen and I can be here for it. But in a different world, uh, if COVID hits at a different time or something like that, maybe not. There's just so many other bigger factors or bigger things that can happen that can change what the world looks like that you can't control all of those things, but you make that educated guess about where you think the world's headed and hopefully it, it will arrive there. But but you know the world is the the world and it will do whatever it wants to in the end. <laughs> Yeah, and he was, I think, only able to do that because he was seriously enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Because he yeah. built so many products just using no code before. And like, found, he found like the winning thing, which was just make a pet. And this is, yeah. again, the strategy mentioned, like being enthusiastic, not just looking for trends and because. I think if you're looking for trends, the, the problem with looking for trends is that by the time you see the trends, it's too late. <laughs> you, can't, <laughs> you can't join the trend at that point, unless it's a really long trend and you're just hopping on early. But with most, I found over the years that trends are getting shorter as well. Like it, it, the peaks and valleys and stuff happen a lot faster these days just because of the, you know, the way that everybody's connected and online all the time and stuff so to spot a trend hop on it and ride it all the way to the top you know you have to that's real luck to just like find the trend and hop on at the right time but if you're already you know if you're already excited about something you're already working in that space and so you don't have to spot the trend the, the sort of trend finds you almost so yeah so i think it's that's the other thing that i think you know, people think it's easy to spot the trend and just hop onto it, but it's by the time you've spotted the trend, by the time you see the excitement and stuff, there's other people who are already very established in that space already. So for you to hop on, yeah, you can probably hop on and make a small amount of money, but you're not going to make a really big successful thing, I don't think. And yeah, the, another collaboration, of course, I have on my list here is a recent one with Nathan. And yes. I'm really curious because he mentioned himself that he's very transactional in his relationship. So these are really his words. I'm really curious, at least if you can share that, um, what kind of agreement you have in place? So are you employed? Are you a co-owner? What, what kind of structure? Yeah, so that, this is another one that just started out, just we didn't have any agreement whatsoever. Like it was just one of these things where it's like, oh, Nathan seems like a cool guy. I think I'd like to see what it's like to work with him. So we came up, we, we talked about an idea that he had. And so I was like, sounds like fun. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can make something here. And so we just launched, you know, kind of a fun little side project called OperationPie.com. But, but yeah, so we had no, no long-term agreement, no plan about working on anything long-term. And actually, it's funny because after we after we built Operation Pi, after about six months or so, I actually had a conversation with, with Nathan. I was like, Nathan, it's really fun. It's been fun working with you. I really enjoyed working with you. But I just don't think I have the time to work on anything anymore. I've got, I've got other things happening. And, and he, he basically sat down and was like, no, Mubs, I don't want to work with you longer term. Let's, let's figure out how we make this work. Just because I was, I was working on other things and stuff at the time. So yes, yeah, so we figured that out. So no, so in terms of founder path, I have a percentage of that and also taking a salary now as well. But, but yeah, but so yeah, there was no formal agreement and stuff. And we just sat down and had the conversation in terms of what would it look like if we started doing this thing kind of whole time. And we talked it through based on how many hours people are putting in and, and how much money they're putting in and sort of other things like that. And it's all very specific to your situation and the, the sort of project that you're doing and the people that you're working with. So there's no like magic formula here in terms of 
it's never going to be an equal. Everybody's going to split the company equally, and because it, it depends on how you're working and what you're working on, and what you know, what capital you need to fund that that, that kind of operation and stuff like that. It's all very specific, but just sit down and have an honest and frank conversation about what you need, and if you can work it out, it works out, and if not, there's. I say there was, obviously the world is what it is for other people and stuff. But for me, at least, there's always been lots of opportunity because I do what I do because I'm pretty good at what I do. I've never really had a point in my life where it's, I don't know what I'm going to work on next. There's always been opportunities where it's people need people who can do what I do. And if it didn't work out with Nathan for whatever reason, in terms of we couldn't figure out the percentages of the money or whatever... I could have, I'm sure I would have got a job somewhere else. Like it's not, it wasn't, it, you know, like I'm very fortunate. I understand it's not the same for everybody else, but you know, like, I think. Yeah, obviously I, I put in the, I put in the effort. I've, I built a very good relation. I've built very good relationships with people that I work with in the past. And whenever I, I need work for whatever reason, I, I'm able to reach out to a few people and they're there. I've been able to, I think I got laid. So not this previous job, even prior to Area 17, I got laid off from a job just because the company was just having some issues and stuff. I got just, I got laid off with a bunch of other people too. <laughs> and within 48 hours, I had a new job lined up. It was just, I, I actually had an offer within 48 hours. And that's, like I said, that's, that's partly because people have worked with me in the past. They're very happy to work with me in the future as well. So I, that's the other thing I, I like to keep in mind is, I don't burn bridges with people. I have very good relationships with people. And I think that's super important. I think people don't put enough emphasis on that as well. I do put in the extra effort. Like that's why people like to work with me and, and would continue to like to work with your new projects and, and, and kind of things like that. So, and, I, and, and I don't think I'm unique in that sense. I think there's lots of other people out there like that too. But I think if people make a conscious effort to do that as well. I think they, it's something that everybody can achieve, I think. So it's not something that just, just because it's me, I'm able to do that. I think it's something that kind of everybody can have that options out there as well. Yeah, it's fantastic advice. <laughs> That's really cool. And maybe the last question I have on the whole, your project history is what you consider is the biggest success for, out of your like 90. You know, yeah, there are lots of factors. I know some projects yeah. got lots of press attention. Yeah. Like, like the robot thing or bot list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a few and it depends on your criteria. Like I think one of the earliest ones, even something like Statomic, uh, which I built, that was one. So he doesn't live this far away anymore. But so I have a friend who used to live about a mile away from me. And so it was fun to work on, on something with somebody who was close, but not like in the same office even. He was working from his house. I was working from my house. I'd like drive over to his house say he, here's the most recent code yeah we push up to github and stuff we just hang out and we'll chat and and so sort of talk about the longer term vision of what's a static flat file cms look like you know so things like that so that was very cool and it's very cool that it's still it's still live now they just released version three of statomic he'd moved down to florida right now but <laughs> so that's kind of cool q is also really cool as well there's six or seven people that work at, at q now Still doing really well. Still never met Matt and Dan in person, which is another amazing thing. <laughs> and I think, and then yeah, in terms of like the biggest amount of press and publicity and stuff, is actually that will robots take my job? That one, I think, in the first month that it was live, had done four million page views. It was on uh, MSNBC.com. It was on radio stations and TV stations around the country. It was on 
Canadian TV. It was on French TV. It was in a kiosk in a museum in San Francisco where they were like, they were doing, they were doing an exhibit on the industrial revolution about how workers changed over the years. And they wanted to put uh, will robots in a kiosk in inside of the exhibit so that people could look at what the potential future of work looked like as well in terms of which jobs would be automated away and stuff like that. So that one was a, that one was a wild ride in terms of just, it just blew up and it went just about everywhere that it could. <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing because it's again, a super simple tool. I yeah. bet it wasn't a lot of work. Oh, I mean, we built that in two weekends. It was two weekends. It was probably about, you know, in terms of actual time, probably about 20 hours work between me and, uh, and, Tibetar as well. Uh, yeah, probably about 20 hours worth of work and, and it, was, it just exploded. Really great. And another cool story I came across is for sale by Maker. <laughs> yes. you, you also ended up selling it in exchange for your computer that you're using. Yeah. Right <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was what, so I built that product on every year, or so, uh, about every year has like a hackathon which they sponsor. And I think for this one, they had just released their new GraphQL API. And so they were encouraging people to build things with this new API that they had put out. And so I built for sale by Maker, which accessed. So it's basically, it's just a way for people to sell their projects that they don't want to work on anymore. And so I used the product and API as a way to pull the information about the product. When you submit to product, you have to give it a name and a tagline and you upload images and all that kind of stuff. And so I figured if somebody was trying to sell something easy, just one click, you log in with product on you, we use the API to pull your products and then we can pull all the information about that product. It made it really easy to build a page that had the information you would put in how much you wanted to sell it for, how much traffic it was receiving, how much money it was making, sort of that kind of stuff. And within one or two clicks, you could have your site listed. And it also made it a little bit easier from if somebody was interested in, in purchasing the site, they could see how it had done, how it had done on the launch as well. Like how many upvotes did it get? Sort of those kind of things as well. So I built the whole thing in uh, probably two weeks or so, you know, trying to learn their new API as well and trying to understand how it all worked and stuff. Um, and then it sat for a year. Like people were still, people were using it. People were posting their products. People were selling. I think I heard from about five or six people that said that they had posted their thing on For Sale by Maker and, and somebody had reached out to them and they had actually sold their thing on it. And it was completely hands-off. Like I didn't have to do anything. It was just something that people were just fine because it was on Product Hunt, obviously. And it's had a you know fairly SEO-friendly name as well in terms of people trying to sell their their projects and things like that too and then yeah so about a year after after i'd launched that andrew who runs micro acquire reached out was like i see that you built and launched this thing and i see it's still live and people are still using it would you be interested in selling it and i was like yeah but i don't know how to put a price on it because i haven't been trying to make money with it so i don't know what the the value of something like that is and, and so I sat down for a while and thought about it. I was like, it'd be nice to have a new laptop. I haven't bought a new laptop in a while. And so I, so I reached out back to Andrew and I was like, how about we look up how much a, you know, a new Apple MacBook Pro is. And if you're okay with that, we'll sell it for the price of the Apple MacBook Pro. <laughs> and he was like, that sounds fair. <laughs> and, and yeah, so in the space of a weekend, we had that conversation. And I, I think it took about a week for me to transfer kind of everything over and stuff but yeah so that's now owned by micro acquire i think they just redirected it in sort of in the end instead 
Yeah, super cool story. <laughs> and definitely a win because, yeah. I wasn't doing anything with it, but it was a cool thing to build for the hackathon. And it was kind of a cool new way to explore their API and everything like that as well. I, I used the time effectively and then it turned out into, it turned into a new laptop instead. <laughs> Not too bad, but so did they integrate it or is it um, really just the domain? I think it was just that they were looking for the, the backlinks and also just, yeah, just to be able to do some publicity and kind of share the story as well, I think as well. And, uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully sure. it's worked out well for him as well. It's a cheap price. It's like what Peter Levels does on Twitter where he is. Yeah, yeah, almost exactly the same. Yeah, almost exactly the same for the price of a laptop. They got some good publicity out of that as well. <laughs> yeah, everyone wins. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with that. And is there any project where you were disappointed that it didn't work out because of course most of them were just for fun and i think you yeah. didn't really care about the outcome because yeah. <laughs> the building was yeah. all the fun but is there anything where you could disappoint um i'm trying to think actually i haven't uh, thought about that one in a while let me see i'm gonna look through my list real quick just <laughs> to see what's on there yeah i don't know like because most of the ideas are just fun things that if they work out great if not then it's not really uh it's not really a big deal i will say some of some of the things in here i think yeah this is something to keep in mind too Oh, actually, I think the one that really still irks me a lot. So if this is like way back in 2015. If you look at Pay, P-A-Y-Y. So I built this with a friend of mine. I guess he lived in Florida at the time. But so we built this thing and it was just a very simple thing. It was just like a web page that, so when you signed up, you got like a pay page. And so you could go to pay, it was P-A-Y dot M-E. So it would be pay me and then it would be slash Mabasher Iqbal or whatever. It was just a page which just had basically a four minute where you could put your credit card info in and then you could just pay me whatever you owed me for whatever reason. Let's say we went to the movies and I bought the ticket and I was like, just just at some point down the road, you can pay me back kind of thing, essentially. Uh, and so we built that, we launched and it was actually doing quite well. People were using it just to send each other money and stuff just for things like paying rent and things like that. And then... A few weeks after we launched it, we got an email from Stripe basically saying that you can't build that. <laughs> we were like, what? We can't build that? And yeah, so Stripe made us shut that down, <laughs> which was really annoying because it was actually doing quite well at the time. But apparently at the time, I don't know if it changed legally and stuff in terms of what Stripe's allowed to do, but you couldn't build a just a general purpose page that wasn't like selling something. like Because I guess at the time at least, uh, when it, to transact through Stripe, it had to be for a specific thing. So if you were buying a piece of software or if you were mm -hmm. signing up for a monthly subscription or something like that was fine. Everything was hunky-dory and everything was fine. But just having a payment page where there wasn't like a specific reason for putting in your credit card info and purchasing a, a good or a service wasn't allowed back then. I, I have no idea if that's still uh, the now or not but yeah that one i think is still the one that just irks on me because i didn't really see a good reason for why stripe shut us down but that's the way it is <laughs> yeah probably regulations i don't know because payment regulations are why I, th I think at the time i think at the time stripe was still fairly new at that point they were still only a couple of years old and so they were beholden to who was actually backing them from a financial institution side of things so there was just certain things that they weren't allowed to 
do at the time. I think now that there's, they're obviously much larger now and, and have a lot more control over what they're allowed to do. I think it probably would be okay now, but you know, back in 2015, at least <laughs> it wasn't something that it wasn't something that the people that Stripe were partnering with weren't allowing Stripe to do it because Stripe wasn't allowed to do it. And we weren't allowed to, to do it either. I think we are almost out of time. So that, so that you have just a bit more time um, before your sure. next meeting, right? But just to wrap things up, I have two quick questions. And maybe the most important one is, in your opinion, who should I talk to <laughs> after talking to you? So who are good persons to learn from, in your opinion? And maybe not even in, in terms of talking to them, but just learning from them by studying what they do. That's equally fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, not just you specifically, but just in general, I think just you know, just learning more about the no-code space, I think, is is valuable for everybody because even as a d developer, there's plenty of times I just don't have the time or the energy to make stuff from scratch and just being able to use tools and things like that, I think is really, is really an important way that people can make things fast without having to spend lots of time on it. So obviously, I care following people like Ben Tossel, um, Param Kanstein is another person who's very active in that no-code space. I think it's Param K on t Twitter. But yeah, very active in that community as well. So I would just encourage people to find people in the no-code space to just follow and, and learn lots. <laughs> That's great advice. And in fact, my, the project I'm currently working on is a little bit no-code. So it's not purely no-code, but awesome. it's a little bit no-code. And I was thinking about how to build it. And then I, it occurred to me, why don't I just use Airtable before I build right. some kind of super complicated and right. whatever myself, because it has all the functionality that I currently need for. And just to yeah. validate whether there's real demand, I will use Airtable. And of course, if people really use it, then I can still so absolutely it's all about it's all about it's all about building i i like and people say like mobs you build so quickly you don't validate your idea my building the thing is validating my idea <laughs> right? so that's how i validate ideas is i build something and if i can do it faster if i can do it quicker i can validate much quicker than even trying to have lots of interviews with people and trying to talk about the idea and trying to explain the idea and collect their feedback and analyze the results it's much quicker to build it and launch it and see people pay for it. And then that's your validation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that approach. And it's also what I'm trying because of course you can talk to potential customers. You can try these kind of tricks where you just put up some landing page with a take buy button and then people click on it and then come the message. Ah, oh, it's not available now, but you can, right. <laughs> but um, it, all the messages the, you get, all the data you get this way is, I don't know, not really clear. And even, right. It, especially by talking to people though because of course lots of people would say the idea is amazing but then they don't end, end up paying yeah <laughs> and and it's also just because you talk to two people who say yes maybe that's the only two people who would have ever said yes <laughs> so just understand and we're not statisticians and stuff so understanding who you're speaking to and understanding how they represent the rest of the market and stuff that's a whole kind of industry unto itself it's so yeah, and there's a whole science to that, and and we're not experts in that. So yeah, just because we spoke to a couple of people who gave us really good feedback and stuff doesn't mean that we built something that's worthwhile. And like I said, it depends on what you're building. If it's going to take you six months to build something, then yeah, maybe you spend a, a week or two doing the the sort of industry research and talking to people and seeing if it's worth spending six months. But if you can spend two or three weeks and just launch something and actually get it in front of real people at that point, real customers, then that's way more valuable than doing that customer research instead.
Yeah, perfect. <laughs> thank you so much for my still very little show. <laughs> okay, yeah, thank you very much.